You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can sing together this morning and confess the truth that you have rescued us and you have set us free. We're no longer enchained, Lord, to the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of our own selves, but you have released us, O oh Lord, to love you and to love our neighbor, and, and we just want to say we're thankful and we're grateful. And we do ask that this morning you'll make use of a sinner to speak your word, that you would open up hearts and minds by the power of your spirit to, to even this morning encounter you, Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Well, if you'll get on page three in your hand, uh, your worship guide, we're going to work through some Hosea this morning. How's that sound? You know, Hosea is a um, it's a it's a, a gut wrenching book. It it, uh, it leaves us uncomfortable on on all kinds of levels. Uh, you know, the beginning of the prophecy. Uh, is, is one that um, has caused all kinds of trouble, frankly, in the Christian tradition, receiving this book and how to quite navigate some of, the, some of its moral complexities. God comes to Hosea, and he asks Hosea to go and to take for himself, um, uh, well, the King James Version has a great turn of phrase on this for you KJV people out there, a, a wife of whoredoms. How's that for a nice turn of phrase? Um, and and it's, a, it's a complicated phrase, admittedly. I mean, we're not quite sure whether or not, you know, um, Hosea goes down to the local brothel and chooses a wife there. I don't think that's quite what's going on. But I, it seems to be that the idea is that Hosea takes a wife to himself that in time will become unfaithful to him in a public and a shameful way. And this is the heavy word of the prophet because Hosea the prophet, like many other prophets, not only delivers God's word of judgment to his people, but he's called to actually embody it himself. That's the, that's the scandal of the book that leaves our cheeks kind of flushed as we read it. And, I, and this may be reading a little bit in between the lines, but if you read chapter 1 and kind of follow the logic of what's going on in Hosea's marriage to Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, it says that he, she bore him a child, the first child, and they named that child Jezreel. And then it says, she then bore another child. And then it says, she then bore another. And it seems to be that the language there is provocative or suggestive that the first child she bore to him, but the other two children she did not bear to him. Um, she, and those children's names, which, I mean, I, I wouldn't expect these to be found in the top ten baby list names of 2022, but um, Lo-Ami, not my people. Lo Ruchama, no mercy. I mean, this is, a, this is a hard scene that we're watching here, almost like a novel where you're seeing a family unravel before you, and the Lord is allowing that unraveling of a human family to be his illustration to his people, both of the significance of their moment and the fact that God's love for his people transcends even their own unfaithfulness. So Hosea is just this remarkable book that presses on the exposed nerves of the most vulnerable areas of our lives. 
And, and, and Hosea traffics between two of the Bible's favorite, I would say, favored metaphors or illustrations for God's love for his people, the husband-wife marital relationship and the father-son or the parent-child relationship. It's the marriage relationship that God uses to illustrate the significance and the meaning of his own eternal covenant with his people. Now, I, 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 um, I don't think that marriage is a sacrament. I'm kind of fully Protestant on this. I don't like the sacrament language kind of creeping into all kinds of other spheres of life. But if you catch me at the right time on a Tuesday or a Thursday with enough coffee in me, um, I, I could yield on that at least on significant analogy, because think about this, it's the marital relation, husband-wife, this physical thing, this vulnerable and yet resilient human institution that God uses to illustrate his love for his people. And in fact, if you follow the logic of Paul in the book of Ephesians, it's not as if it goes this way. God in heaven looks down on, the, on, the, on humans and all of their institutions and interactions and says, I wonder what human institution I can use as an illustration to show my love for my people. It, it, the logic doesn't work that way. The logic is quite the reverse. God actually institutes marriage for the purpose of illustrating his love to his people before the whole world. It's why marriage and that covenantal relationship is so important. It's also, I think, why, and I talk this way to my students and talk this way to my kids, it's also why the commitment to the marriage covenant itself is almost more important than your commitment even to your spouse. Um, it's the commitment to the institution and the relationship itself because this is the place that God is modeling and illustrating to the world his love for his people. And what we're seeing in Hosea is the whole thing coming undone. Relationships make us vulnerable. They bring with them the capacity for great joy, and they also bring with them the capacity for great sorrow. And I see the gray hair in the room. Those of you who've lived long enough know that the joy and the sorrow are often commingled one with the other. So marriage and the father-son or the parent-child relationship, this, this is the Bible's favorite illustration, and Hosea is sliding between the two this morning. And when we turn to Hosea chapter 11, which is in your bulletin, we see the child relationship now coming to the fore. When Israel was a child, when Israel was a young man, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, now I will admit this is tricky language here in Hosea, but the more that they called them, who are the they? If English teachers in here would mark Hosea off for this, like an unclear antecedent or something like that. Who, who are the they? Probably the prophets, like Hosea. The more the prophets called them, the more that they went away from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. So do you see the dynamic here? It's, it's the illustration of the rebellious child. It's the heartbreak that comes along with a son or a daughter that's been loved and cared for that in time turns against the family and all that the family values in its, in its own internal dynamics. When Israel was a child, I loved them, and yet they kept turning away from me. The more I called them, the more 
the more they resisted. And what does this resistance look like? How did they resist the Lord? Let me just give you three things. Number one, they confused God's love and care with idols. This is, this is so important. That they confused the care that God was showing them in their lives with their religious um, hedging of their bets. This is kind of how it worked. And, and by the way, Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. They've done all these archaeological discoveries of the northern kingdom that have caused Christians some trouble. I mean, it's like, we really wish you wouldn't have found that. Like, here's a picture of Yahweh, uh, the Lord, depicted sitting side by side with his bride or his consort. You're like, hold on now. I didn't know that the Lord had a bride or a wife. I thought that was kind of pagan. And the answer is, yes, indeed, it is. But here are all these religious descriptions in the northern kingdom of the Lord sitting with Asherah, his female bride, his divine bride. And what, what was all this? It was a kind of religious hedging of the bets. We'll, we'll sprinkle in a little Yahweh worship with a little bit of Baal worship with a little bit of Asherah worship, and we'll, we'll kind of hedge our religious bets. So when it comes springtime, we'll worship some Baal. When it comes harvest time, we'll worship a little Asherah. And we'll do all of this together in our worship of the Lord because maybe, um, maybe we'll, uh, we'll get one of them right. Kind of like the sailors in Jonah 1 who said, everybody call out to their God and let's see who hits bingo today. So this is the challenge that we see before them. They're, 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 um, they're, they've lost sight of the centrality of the Lord and the Lord alone. We, we know that when you start hearing Lord and Lord alone language in the Bible, especially among the prophets and off the lips of Moses, you begin to get really to the heartbeat and the pulse of the whole Bible. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul very, very much. Be loyal exclusively to me and to no other. God's jealous. He's zealous for his people to love him. Not because he's some sort of despot who's insecure and needing of affirmation, but because God knows in his desire for the best for his people that he is the best and there is no other. The Lord and the Lord alone. Come feast on me. No more in the mud pile. No more in the slums. Come and feast on me. I've offered you everything. But here's the, here's the dynamic of sin and its consequences on all of our lives. But the more I called to them, the more they resisted me. The more that I offered them the infinity of my own self and my own love, the more they kept going to Baal and Asherah and El, and you name the God, there they went. They confused me with others. They were, they were hedging their bets. They also exchanged um, the gift of God for the giver. I mean, this is a really moving scene here. Verse 3, if you see it in your handout. Um, they kept sacrificing to Baals, they burnt incense to idols, but I taught Ephraim, which is, um, think, think of the term Ephraim and Hosea as your pet nickname uh, for your child. I've got one here right now, I'm going to embarrass him. F Franklin is our, our third son, his initials are, he's Franklin Isaiah Genelette. So um, I don't know if this is really, I'm sorry about this, but you're stuck with it. We call him Fig all the time. Uh, on the base, hey, Fig. Think of Ephraim as Fig. I don't know. This is a pet name. It's, in other words, it's a term of endearment. You'd have to be in an intimate relationship to use this term. That's what Ephraim means to the Lord. Ephraim did not know that, and is this not just the kind of um, brooding, emotive outburst here from our own Lord? I took them in my arms. 
They did not know that I was the one that healed them. They did not know that it was I was the one who took them, uh, taught them to walk, pulled them along with cords of a man, with ropes of love, and became to them as one who lifts the yoke, the burdens from off of their jaws. And then I bent down and I, I fed them. They, they did not know. In, in brief, what the prophet laments here is that they lacked the knowledge of their Savior and their Creator Lord. They did not know. In fact, if, we're, if Hosea walked in here today and we were to ask him, this is maybe not a very good imaginative idea here, but we were to ask Hosea, tell us um, in uh, 20 words or less, what's your prophecy all about? I think he would say something like this, my people die for lack of knowledge. They do not know. They're confused. There's a reason why in verse 6, and we're not going to be able to get very deep in this chapter, but there's a reason in verse 6 that the Lord goes after the prophets. The sword will whirl against their cities and destroy their oracle priests because, why? Of their counsels. I mean, you want to get a prophet really upset? Start talking to him about priests and other false prophets that are leading God's people astray. That will get a prophet of the Lord very upset. There's a trickle-down sort of impact here that false teaching, bad teaching from the prophets leads to all kind of confusion among the people. A lack of knowledge. My people die for a lack of knowing who I am. They don't know. What is saving faith? What does it mean for us to have Saving faith this is a kind of a fundamental question of Christianity, isn't it? It's knowing the truth about what God has revealed in Jesus in his saving activity for the whole world and leaning on that truth as if it's the very thing on which your life rests. Knowing that it's true and knowing that it's true for us, that's saving faith. My people die for lack of knowledge. There's an emotive heaviness in this chapter, and I have to tell you, it's almost embarrassing. All the social mores have been tossed off, and, and God is pleading with his son, Ephraim, don't do this. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school, and I am, I am not proud of this, my mother who um, many of you have met my mother, and she's not here today. I doubt she will hear this, so I will share this story with you. Um, was born in Beirut, Lebanon. Um, so, so, you know, if, if there's a stereotype of, of a Middle Eastern woman in terms of um, emotional gravity, uh, you know, my mom fits the bill. And, and in the 10th grade, and I love her to death, in the 10th grade, um, she caught me in... Uh, really compromising situation. I mean, and caught me red-handed. It was, it was, it was bad. Um, and uh, so she, I could just still see her face in her horror and shock, told me to get in the car. We're driving home. For those of you who know Tampa, Florida, we're driving on Bayshore Boulevard in Tampa, Florida to, to my home in South Tampa. And my, my mother, so overcome with grief, in this moment, pulls over to the side of the road, lifts her hands to the heavens, and begins to intercede for me on the spot. I mean, it, it was awful. 
All right, awful. Um, and it, I mean, if you'd have been there, you would have been embarrassed. You'd have been clamoring for the door. And all of us have been in these sort of situations before. It's like, I, I, maybe we should just leave now. That, that's kind of Hosea 11. Um, they, they did not know that it was me. I mean, do you hear the pleading, emotive character of our Lord first? They didn't know it was me that was calling them. They're off serving Baal and, and hedging their bets, but it was me who, who, with the cords of a man, drew them toward me with love. So off of the backdrop of the portrait of human unfaithfulness, of our tendency to rebellion, of our basic instinct to try to make God in our own best image, here you have against that backdrop this amazingly beautiful portrait of our living God. His character is on display. Who is our God here? He's the one who initiates the love. When Israel was sweltering away, Under the heat of the Egyptian sun, making bricks with no straw, I loved him. I set my affection on him. I turned all of my desire toward him when Israel had nothing to offer to me. Now, I have no interest in getting controversial this morning, but this sits on the good old-fashioned doctrine of election that you might even find in our 39 articles of of religion. I know it's a controversial topic. I don't want to kind of chase it, but I do want to say this. Election, the doctrine of election that God calls us to himself when we were unable to move toward him, that doctrine is intended, at least in the Bible, to bring enormous pastoral comfort. Now, the truth is it's a matter of great controversy, and I get it, and I can understand why. But it's meant to bring enormous comfort. Because those who recognize themselves as sinners in need of grace only recognize themselves in that way because God has opened their eyes by the Holy Spirit to see that that's true. So if you're in a struggling place, wrestling with your faith, seeking to hold on to the claims of the gospel, that is the electing grace of God wrapped around you, whispering in your ear with regularity, I came to you first. I love you. My love is sustaining. It's a cord of love made with hands that will not let you go. This is me that initiated this, and I will bring it to completion. Stay with me. Stay in the struggle. Hold on to my promises. Do not let me go because I promise I will never let you go. That's the character of our God on display in the face of human faithfulness and faithlessness and human frailty. He sustains them, you see here in chapter 11, even in their unbelief. Isn't that remarkable and beautiful? I gave them all of this even when they thought that Baal, they think Baal gave them this great harvest this year? How silly of them. I did that for them. But I'm going to continue to sustain them. He refuses to let them go. Look at these words in verse 8, if you see it in your handout. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Now, again, won't chase this, but this is all built off the laws of the rebellious child in Deuteronomy. God had every right to release his people to total annihilation and destruction in this moment. And what does he say? I just just can't do it. I cannot let you go. My love for you is too much. What the prophet is letting the people know here is God has an enormous capacity for love and forgiveness, more than we can even imagine or or understand. Here's the big message of the prophets. Here's the big message of Hosea. God never refuses a sinner who turns to him in repentance. Never. 
Now, th this is maybe a little bit of an inflated imagination, and, and if, if this goes too far, forgive me. But I have, this, I have this sort of idea in my mind that Jesus in his earthly ministry, Luke 15, he gives this incredible story of the prodigal son. I don't know what the interaction between heaven and earth is in these moments. I don't know. But I think there's some interaction. And I just think about when Jesus is delivering that famous story of the prodigal son with the promise of repentance and renewal and return and God's grace on display to those who recognize themselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And I could just see in the, in the heavenly portals, there's Hosea sitting next to Isaiah. Jeremiah's across the way. And here's Amos and Zechariah and Malachi. And they're all sort of looking down going, yes. That's exactly what we've been telling them for generations. Tell them again, Lord. God never refuses a sinner that turns to him in repentance. He cannot do it. To do so would be a denial of his own character, and God cannot deny himself. That's who he is. His love is on display. Repentant sinners who turn to him will always receive his mercy and his forgiveness. That's what makes the horror of the first two verses so heartbreaking. The more I called to them, the more they repelled me away. I'd fail you this morning if I didn't uh, link Hosea 11 to the Gospel of Matthew. You know that in the birth narratives, it, it uses Hosea 11.1 to talk about Jesus going down to Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him and, and called him out of Egypt, and here we see Jesus kind of going down to Egypt and coming out. It's kind of remarkable. What do we see happening there? We see Jesus being Israel for the world. He's entering into, in his own life, the dynamics laid out for us in prophets like Hosea. We follow him and track him along. It's like, oh, this all sounds rather familiar. And then we realize that Jesus in his own person is, is recapitulating the whole history of Israel and the whole history of the prophets. It's, it's a remarkable thing to behold. And here is where, again, in this heavenly tribunal, Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all stand back and suck air in in surprise. When they watch Jesus of Nazareth, God, the God-man, Israel in the flesh, also take on for Israel and for the world the judgment and the reprobation that we see God displaying even here in Hosea 11. That's the unyielding character of God's love for his people. It's the unyielding character that says, my people cannot turn to me on their own, therefore I will take the whole thing on myself. And I'll send my son to be Israel, both in my election of Israel, my choosing of Israel, and, and here's the shock of the gospel, and in my reprobation or damnation of Israel. He'll take all of that in his person and work. It's a remarkable thing when we look at ourselves and recognize who we really are. Our capacity for faithlessness knows no bound. I was sitting last night and uh, reading an essayist that I like to read, um, kind of an old dead man. Uh, they tend to be better. Um, but uh, just talking about the inconstancy of what it means to be a human. Um, the, the fact that it's really hard to even know ourselves really hard to kind of come to terms with who we are. The prophets help us see who we really are. 
Um, our tendency to, re to rebel, our tendency to put our hands up, to go our own way. And over the backdrop of that, we see God's love displayed to us again and again. He won't let us go. He invites us back to himself. And that's why around here for a long time, people will say the whole Christian life is a life of repentance. All of it is. It's not one thing that I did at camp one summer on a Friday night. The whole Christian life is a life of repentance, turning again and again to embrace the truth of what? That God has already embraced us in Christ. Oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. And now, Lord, seal these things into our hearts and our minds. Thank you, O oh God, for the prophets, dead and long gone, and yet they still, by the power of your Spirit, speak right into our world. We are so grateful and so thankful. Would you let us know your love, O oh Lord? You told us in your word that it's your goodness that leads us to repentance. Can we stand amazed before your goodness? And can it draw us to you even today once again as we seek to cling and hold on to your promises? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.